10. We'll be looking at this passage this morning. Matthew chapter 10. As we begin, I just want to say uh, thank you to Pastor Jason for preaching the last four Sundays. It's been fun to be in the ABFs with you uh, that were in uh, the class that I was leading. And I was just thinking how healthy it is for the church to have different people, different voices that we hear from God's Word as, as uh, God works through each of us and our experiences, and we have the opportunity to share that with you. I'm just so grateful for Pastor Jim and for Pastor Jason and uh, those that are part of our staff and the opportunity to work together like this. I was saying for myself, uh, that was the first time I had been in an ABF since 2001 when we went to dual track Sunday school and ABFs where we have them at the same time as our worship service. So that had been a long time uh, since I had done something like that and it was, it was a lot of fun. But I'm looking forward to sharing from God's Word today in the passage we're going to look at this morning. This is a text where we uh, did look at part of it when we were doing our series in the fall when we kicked off things. And so I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the front half of the text. It's a long passage and a little bit less time on the second half just to give you an idea of what we're going to do this morning. But let's pray as we begin. Father, as we come to you today, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us and teaches us, who opens our minds to understand the truth of your word, and we ask that you would do that today. Help us to hear from you. We need that. We need your word to give us the instruction that we need so that we know how we might live in a way that is pleasing to you. Would you teach us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Pastor Jason shared a message. It was called, Come and Join the Harvest. Come and Join the Harvest. And at the end of chapter 9, we see this instruction of Jesus where he tells us that we are to pray and ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Well, chapter 10 is the answer to that prayer. It's not the only answer. This is something that God would do throughout the church age, but it is that initial answer, and that's the way that Matthew really sets it up here. You see Jesus' prayer, and in the very next chapter, Jesus is sending out the twelve. So what does that tell us? Well, there's a couple observations I made on this just at the beginning. Uh, Number one, it tells us that the disciples were the answer to their own prayers. Here Jesus had said, I want you to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. And so, okay, Jesus, we're going to do that. And then right away, he sends them out. Just like God does that for us. He wants us to pray that God would raise up laborers from our church. But you know, the answer to that prayer is you and me. That we would go and be involved in His work wherever we live, wherever our neighborhood is, or our family, our relatives, our workers uh, that we work with at the office or wherever it might be. God wants to use us as His witnesses too. And secondly, it is a powerful statement that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. That He is the one that they were asking to send out laborers. This is high Christology. It is another statement about Jesus' deity that when we pray, we pray in the name of the, in the name of Jesus to God the Father, but it is Jesus here who is this one who calls and sends out laborers into His harvest. And He still does that today. 
he's still raising up people to go into his harvest fields. Now, some of what we read in chapter 10 was unique to the apostles in that setting. But much of it still applies to us, and there are things that we can learn from their example. And so the question I want you to think about as we go through this text is, what does it mean to be a disciple today? What does it mean for you and us to hear his call? What is he asking us to do when he says, come and join the harvest? And we're going to take a look at that in this passage. Number one, Jesus calls us to join in the harvest. Let's read verses 1 to 4. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What we see here is that Jesus gathered these men who were traveling with him and listening to him in his ministry. And now he is sending them out as apostles. This is the first time that that word apostle is used, and it has a very specific meaning. And this is their commissioning. The word apostle sometimes is used in a broad definition, meaning uh, one who is sent with a message. It comes from the Greek word apostello, which means to send. And so sometimes you'll hear that word used in this broad sense that it is a messenger. But in its narrow definition as it is used here, it refers to those who specifically spent time with Jesus, they were taught by Him, they were witnesses of His resurrection, and they were commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in that sense, these men were the only ones who could make that claim. Paul will talk about himself as one who is called an apostle, as though abnormally born, he'll say in Corinthians. He received his commission from Jesus, and he received the gospel he preached by revelation from Jesus, according to Galatians 1.12. When the disciples replaced Judas Iscariot, they looked for someone who had been with them from the very beginning, from John's baptism all the way through, and who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they chose Matthias by lot, who was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. So these men were unique, and there will never again be apostles in this definition of the word. So when you hear someone today claiming to be an apostle, it should raise a little question mark as something that you want to check out and see how are they using that word. What do they mean by that? Because no one today has the apostolic authority that these men had who were commissioned by Jesus. And this is one of four places in Scripture where the apostles are named. The other passages are in Mark chapter 3 and in Luke 6 and in Acts chapter 1. And when you look at these lists, you wouldn't notice this unless you compare them side by side, but there are some things that are similar and some things that are different. For example, Peter always comes first and Judas Iscariot is always last for obvious reasons. Peter was the leader of this group. And uh, he just was the outspoken one. And the guy who stepped forward so much, he was the natural leader. 
and commissioned by Jesus to serve in that way. But Judas Iscariot was a betrayer, and he is listed as last. You'll see in this passage that they are named in pairs, which fits with the other Gospels where we're told that they were sent out two by two. And so you'll see these pairs. The first pairs, you know, Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and and uh, John are also brothers, sons of Zebedee, who were also called sons of thunder. I just kind of wonder what their personalities were like, don't you, when you hear that? Sons of thunder. What were these guys like? And then to think of how John becomes this apostle who writes so much about loving one another and how God you know, took that uh, energy and zeal that he had and yet he mellowed that by God's grace and he becomes this apostle who loved God so deeply and passionately and loved others. We go through that list and sometimes you'll see uh, different names in the list too. Uh, For example, you've got Philip and Bartholomew. We think Bartholomew is probably Nathaniel. You've got Thomas and Matthew, the text collector. You've got James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Thaddeus is also called uh, Judas, the son of James. Simon the Zealot is sometimes called Simon the Canaanite. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And you can imagine those guys being sent out two by two in their mission. But there also seems to have been companies of four, because when you compare the list, Peter is always first on the first four, even though the order of the names may change, and Philip is always mentioned first on the next set of four, even though the order changes. And James, the son of Alphaeus, who we know very little about, is always first in that last group of four. These men would take the gospel all over the Middle East, all over the Mediterranean, and all but one would die a martyr's death. John was the one who died in exile. The apostles were now sent out with a delegated authority. It says that they were given power to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Can you imagine what that would have been like? given the power to do the things that Jesus did, to walk up to those who were sick and to say, be well, and they were well, or to be healed, and they were healed, to have the power to speak the word, and the demons came out of those individuals whom they had possessed. They could not do this in their own strength, and neither can we. It is a reminder that when Jesus calls us to a task, he will give us the resources we need to fulfill it. He will give us the power and the authority that we need to do the work that He has called us to. So what does it mean to have a delegated authority? Well, let me give you an example of that. I was thinking back to when I was in elementary school. When I was 11 years old, in our school we had a school patrol. Did anybody else have that? I mean, this is so long ago. Okay, we got a few here who know what that is. I don't know when they stopped doing that or if they still do this in rural areas. But basically, in the school patrol, what they did for us is they gave us this helmet. kind of looked like a World War II surplus helmet that was painted white. But it was pretty cool to put that thing on, you know, and wear that. And they gave us a badge, and you know, and then they gave us this flag that had a stop sign on it. And we would walk every day two blocks from our school to the main intersection in town. We didn't have stoplights in this small town where I was. But it was a state highway, and it was fairly busy with traffic at times. 
And so we would go and we'd stand at this intersection as the students came out of school. You know, they'd walk down there and they'd stop at the intersection. And when there was a, a large enough number for us to kind of stop traffic, we'd raise our flag. That was the sign to the cars or trucks to stop. And then when they'd stop, we'd walk onto the street and we'd hold our flag out and the students would cross safely. And you know what was really amazing about that? You know, and we did that, even those really big trucks, those semis, those 18-wheelers had to stop. I mean, you know, who are we? We're just kids out there standing in the middle of a street with a flag. They could have just flattened us in an instant if they had wanted to. I know it didn't hurt that there was usually a state patrol or a city police car (laughs) about a half a block away watching the whole thing. You know, that was a good... But we had a delegated authority. A delegated authority. And when you think about that in terms of our role as believers or a ministry in the church, Christ says to us that we go in His name. And so when we pray... And when we minister or when we teach and we speak the Word, it is with the authority of Jesus Christ. And even the demons need to respond to that, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and because He is at work in us. And so, again, doesn't that give us confidence when we pray or preach or minister in the name of Jesus? We go and it is He and His Holy Spirit who works through us to accomplish His work. The power is not in us. It is in Jesus. And He sends us out in His name. Jesus also defines the mission. And we see that here in verses 5 through 16. We'll look at the first half. Let me read that for us. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. All right. In these verses, the apostles are told not to go to the Gentiles yet they are told to go to the Jew first. Now that command will be changed. When Jesus comes to the Great Commission, He'll send them to the ends of the earth to take the Gospel. And so here's a restricted ministry for a specific period in time in which He wanted them to bring this Gospel to the Jew first. It's part of God's salvation history. The Jews were chosen to be God's witness to the world. Through them, the Messiah, Jesus, would come. And so they were given this first opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel. 
the disciples were sent out two by two, and they were to preach the kingdom of heaven is near. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached when he was preparing the way of the Lord. It's the same message that Jesus preached when he began his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The word repentance is not mentioned here, but it is still assumed it's applied in that message. That to hear the gospel calls for a response on our part. To turn from our sin and to turn back to God. And so really, it is the same message that we preach too. We are calling men and women and boys and girls to turn from their sin and to turn to the Lord in repentance and to trust in Him as Savior and Lord. They were given the power to heal, even to raise the dead. Now that's a stunning thing. We are not given that same kind of power. We are uh, told to pray, and we are to pray about everything, and God still does miracles today. But none of us have been given that kind of authority where we could walk into a hospital, and we could heal those who were there and just go through the rooms and say, Be well, and they would be well. God hasn't given to us in this period of time that same power and authority. There are times when God works in very dramatic ways. Though we hear the stories as the gospel is pushing into new frontiers where there are those power encounters and we are seeing dramatic miracles once again. But it is God who chooses when to heal and when to give the grace to endure through illness or suffering or afflictions in our life. We pray and we ask boldly, but we also ask humbly, that His will would be done and not our own. They were to go from village to village. If they were welcomed by home, they were to give their blessing of peace. If they were rejected, they were to shake off the dust off of their feet as a sign of judgment against that village. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying something very significant that still applies to you and me. It is how people receive you is how they receive me, is what Jesus is saying. If people reject you, it's because they have rejected me. If you share the gospel and people harden their hearts against it, you know, that's because they are rejecting me. And then he makes this statement that rejecting God's messengers is more serious than Sodom and Gomorrah's rejection of the angelic visitors. Remember when God sent the angels, to see what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. God knew. He knew the cries of their heart. But He sent these angels to visit them. And they were rejected. Here He is saying that rejecting these apostles, rejecting these messengers of the gospel, rejecting the good news, is a far more serious crime than what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's strong language, isn't it? You know, I think of that today when there are countries that have kicked out missionaries, closed churches, burned them down, killed Christians as martyrs. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize the awful judgment that they bring upon themselves when they reject God's Word and want to silence the truth of that. And Jesus is saying something else here about Himself. He is saying that He is the dividing line between heaven and hell. 
that what someone believes about Jesus, one's eternal destiny turns on what we do with Jesus. Will we open our heart to Him and believe that He is the Savior, the Son of God, turn from our sins and ask Him to be our Savior and Lord? Or will we reject Him? One's eternal destiny depends on what we do with Jesus. That's why there is such an urgency to share the good news with those who have never heard. That's why we as Christians are working so hard to bring the gospel to the nations, to those who have never heard it before. Because everyone's eternal destiny turns on this issue. What do you believe about Jesus? Will you come to Him and receive Him as your Savior and Lord? For the apostles, their lives and ministry were to back up the message that they preached. The kingdom of heaven is near, and the kingdom of heaven grows in the hearts of men whenever people open up their heart to Christ and receive Him. The kingdom grows. But the kingdom is also about pushing back and overcoming the darkness in our world. That's one of the reasons for these dramatic miracles, because that day is coming when God's going to heal all disease and afflictions. And there'll be no more sorrow or suffering or pain or death. All of those things that are part of this fallen world are going to pass away. And so these apostles were sent out with the power to do these miracles and even to raise the dead as a demonstration that the kingdom of God has broken into our world. It has entered in, but it hasn't come in all of its fullness yet. That day is still to come. But our life, our actions, our deeds should also back up what we believe and what we teach. We need to walk the talk. Let me give you an example of that. William Cameron Townsend was the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, the same organization that Carrie works with in doing the translation project that we are involved in. His vision was to create a a ministry, a mission that would translate the Word of God into every known language. He did that in Guatemala with the Cacaquil in the 1920s, and later he worked in Mexico also. When he was working in Mexico, he was in a village there where he also introduced agricultural techniques that brought both better diets And it also was a witness to those who were skeptical about his work or ministry. The work wasn't easy. When Uncle Cam came, he found that all the good soil had been scraped off to make adobe bricks for a church in the town hall. They didn't understand that. So they took the best soil and then they left the poorest soil to try and grow crops. And so he helped them to work in compost and manure and ash and things to rebuild the soil, and he built an irrigation system. Before long, there were rows of fruit trees as well as flowers and carrots and lettuce and radishes and beans and celery that gave variety to their diet, things that they could eat and enjoy. By such demonstrations of goodwill, he showed that the gospel of Jesus Christ is also highly practical in its effect upon people. In the midst of this time, the mayor came to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Townsend had given him a New Testament, and he explained the scriptures to him, and they took effect. 
And the mayor said, you know, he couldn't explain what had come over him, but he told Townsend that I don't do the things I used to do. This book stops me. In time, the mayor put away his pistol. He sent New Testaments to his political enemies who made attempts on his life. He wrote accompanying letters explaining that through this book he'd learned to forgive them. And he wanted them to read it so that they could learn to forgive him too. The mayor quit drinking. He quit using tobacco and marijuana. He quit beating his wife, the 28th woman with whom he'd lived. You know, I look at that and go, it's just amazing what God did here. In time, he would gather the town citizens and he would read the New Testament to them for hours at a time, explaining it in their own Aztec language. And one time when Townsend suggested some practical ways of reforming the village socially, the mayor protested and he said, No, Professor, that won't work. Only God's Word can change my people. And they need it in their own language. Only God's Word can change the hearts of people. That's why we're involved in the ministries that we are. You know, and that's why we don't do social action just for social action's sake. We do it in conjunction with the gospel so that people might hear the word of God and see the difference that it makes in people's lives. In verses 17 to 31, Jesus described what it would be like when they brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And I'm going to pass over this section quickly because this is one that we had looked at earlier in the year. But he said, Be on your guard against them. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a family father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub or Satan, how much more are the members of his household? So don't be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the ones who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. What Jesus is saying here is that as they go to, the, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, opposition will increase. And it will come from governors and kings, and it will even come within families. He tells them that all men will hate you, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So be faithful, be strong. Why will they treat you this way? It is because you belong to Jesus. It's that identification again with Jesus Christ. 
And then he says, don't be afraid. Truth will triumph. God will watch over you. You are worth more than sparrows. And even the hairs of your head are numbered. And ultimately, God will reward you. And that's the point I want to look at next. Jesus tells us that following Jesus involves risk and reward. And we'll see that in that last section. And in particular, he says in verses 40 to 42, that he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. There are risks to following Jesus. There will be opposition. There will be times when you may be rejected by your family. I've had uh, young men and women that I've worked with who have experienced that in their families. When we were involved in a campus ministry, we had that at times where people didn't understand the commitment that they made. I worked with a young man who was Jewish and his family had basically disowned him. Even in my own family, for a time when we went on staff with Campus Crusade, I had one of my family members who thought we had joined a cult. You know, they just didn't understand this commitment to Jesus Christ. In parts of the world today, there are those who still experience imprisonment and death as a martyr. We are not experiencing that here in our country now, but we never know how things may turn or change. But when you look at the other side, the rewards are so much greater. When we think about the salvation of our souls and the deliverance from hell, I mean, how do you... You can't put a price on that. That's why Jesus said, What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and yet lost his own soul? When you think of the joy of knowing Jesus and seeing God use us in His service... When you think of the spiritual fruit in our life, the way He's changed us and the way we see others grow in Christ, when you think of the gift of eternal life and all that goes with that, spending eternity with Jesus in the world that He is preparing for us, and when we think of His rewards, an eternal reward that is far beyond what we could ask or imagine, Jesus tells us that no sacrifice, no matter how small, even giving a cup of cold water in His name, will not go unrewarded. Following Jesus is worth the cost. Paul said it like this in Romans 8.18. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And when you think of all that Paul suffered, he's saying they aren't even worth putting on the same scale that what God has planned for us is so much greater. And Mark in his gospel said, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields and yes, with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. God will be no one's debtor. Following Jesus is worth the cost. So what does it mean to be a disciple today? Well, basically it means being faithful. 
in the little things. To our wife, to our husband, it is loving our kids, it's getting up and going to work to be a provider, it is being a good neighbor, it is reaching out in kindness to those around us, it's giving a cup of cold water to a shaky old man in a nursery home, it's going and serving on a committee meeting at times in our life, and it is going out the doors of the church to minister in His name. It means being generous and giving to support the local church and to send out missionaries and to help the poor. It is doing all that we do in Jesus' name. Be faithful. Share the good news of the gospel and join in the harvest right where you live and work. Let's pray. Father, when we think of the apostles who went out in the early days of that ministry, we are in awe of what you did through them and how they willingly laid down their life for you. When they had seen you risen from the dead, it changed everything. And they went out with passion and power and authority to preach the good news. Father, would you also continue to work in our hearts to give us that same kind of passion for the lost, a love for those around us and a desire to see as many people as we can come into a relationship with you. Would you lead us as a church in that way and also as individuals? Help us, Father, to be faithful as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.